I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast that finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Weather is probably the number one on our list of things that we can't control. I'm pretty comfortable now with the fact that I know that I am probably going to be on edge for the entire row. Storm Eunice is passing after ravaging through the UK at speeds as high as 122 miles an hour. A few days on, all most of us have left is a bit of blustery weather and debris from fallen trees left to sweep up. Others, sadly, were not so lucky. Weather became the talk of the town and for just a moment we were at the mercy of Mother Nature and it's not an exaggeration to say that it was very scary. Now imagine what life would be like if you were constantly battling the weather, never given the chance to stop thinking about it, always second-guessing what's going to hit you next. Well, when you're rowing an ocean, that's your reality. Throughout the course of this series, we're following the journey of adventurer and extreme sports enthusiast Kaz Lander as she prepares to row 2,000 miles around the coast of Great Britain. In episode one of this series, we caught Kaz just before winter training began, and a whole lot has happened since then. Chapter one, finding a way. A 2,000 mile row along the coast of Great Britain, it seems enough of a challenge for one couple, don't you think? Well, it seems the universe doesn't quite agree. The setbacks and battles have already begun months before the event has even started. Kaz and her partner Andre had planned to train together in South Africa, but Omicron had other ideas. Three days before her flight, South Africa went onto the red list again, with all flights to and from the country cancelled. Having already been apart for eight months with Kaz in the UK and Andre in South Africa, they weren't just desperate to train, they were longing to see each other. Fortunately, Kaz did make it to South Africa and her worries about being stuck in the country subsided as the world very quickly unlocked, unlike the last time a new Covid variant emerged. Everything's back on track, but that doesn't mean it hasn't been stressful. So through all of this, what training has she actually been able to do? I wouldn't say it's not been ideal. The biggest issue that we have is that I don't have a South African passport, Andre doesn't have an English passport, so we are stuck basically having to go between the two countries to be able to see each other. So in an ideal world, we would have, our boat is in the UK. We would have been with the boat. We would have trained kind of over winter, got out on the boat as much as possible in good weather. And for us, that's not an option. Um, Andre, because of visa restrictions, the earliest he can come over to the UK is the start of April. So we knew from the outset that doing this, we were going to have a really short period of time that allowed us to do the on-water training. The benefit I guess we have is that I've done it all before. So I've, I've gone across the Pacific. I know the boat. I work for the No Man Ocean Row Races, where I train the crews. I do all their scrutineering. I provide all the safety cover. So for me, an ocean rowing boat and an ocean kind of rowing boat situation, scenario, whatever you want to call it, is a really comfortable place for me. I know how the boat works. I definitely feel in a very different place at this stage compared to where I felt when we went across the Pacific. It feels like yin-yang. It's, it's two completely different ball games. I think. I mean, at this stage, four years ago when we were doing the Pacific row, every day I think the first thing I woke up and thought about was the row. The last thing I thought about was the row. 
I remember just having a huge checklist of all the things I didn't know how to do, I wasn't comfortable with, things that we needed to get under control. Whereas this time around, everything feels far more relaxed in terms of we know how the boat works, we know what to do. So I think that's that's made the situation that we're in a lot more comfortable kind of being in a different country to where our boat is. So yeah, we really just, we've kind of had the luxury really of just being able to focus purely on kind of physical preparation. So gym work, you know, just getting strong, trying to make sure that we, any areas of weakness that we've both got in terms of potential injuries, previous injuries, strengthening, just being able to focus on that and and really kind of put all of our efforts into that. And then just the mental side, really. And, and that, again, feels completely different in terms of the, I guess, the relationship. So previously, the Pacific row, I was rowing with two, which were in reality strangers to me. I'd met them, well, I'd met Meg five months previously and Elle, we met kind of on the shoreline. Yeah, well, yeah, on the shoreline. I mean, we first started speaking to her really two months before we, before we rowed. So yeah, so obviously the scenario with Andre is, is entirely different. So from a mental preparation as well, that's been a really nice scenario in terms of, you know, we're much more open with each other. We we know what stresses each other out. We know how we, we already know how each other handle certain situations. Yeah, I, I'd say preparation is going really, is going really well for the row. It's probably not the preparation on paper we would have put down to have. But yeah, it certainly feels like it's going well. We don't really have any worries at the moment. And we've got a good plan in place for when we're over with the boat. It's fascinating because I think we're looking at a situation in which people like me are suffering from considerably higher levels of anxiety than either of the pair of you. And I know that you've done this before, and I know that you've also done lots of consultancy on Ocean Rose for, for other crews. It sounds like what's happening is that you are finding comfort and rigor and routine in the things that you can control, such as gym work and and thinking about injuries that you may have had and obviously don't want to don't want to have again is that is that right is there is there comfort in the things that you are able to control like going to the gym and getting strong yeah completely um i think that was probably one of the biggest lessons that i took away from the pacific was we kind of used to speak about it quite a lot on the boat and we used to say you know control the controllables and worry about the uncontrollables when they happen and i think that's exactly what what we're doing um i mean andre's he's got one of those personalities where he doesn't worry about anything until he has to worry about it. I was probably almost the opposite end where I used to, I'd worry about what was going to happen and then I'd be worrying twice. Over time, I've learned actually, you know, there's no point worrying about something that hasn't happened yet that you can't control. And actually, if we try and control them, we're probably going to put ourselves in a either a more dangerous position or a far more stressful position by trying to control those, I mean, you can't control weather, we can't control, we can't control if something breaks on the boat, but we can control how we handle those situations. Chapter two, the weather. It's very clear that Kaz and Andre aren't the only characters in this story. You've got the boat, and then of course you have the weather. They may be less traditional characters, but both of them play such a vital role within the narrative of this story. They can't be seen as anything less than characters in their own right. 
I actually recorded this conversation on the day the red weather warning was issued for Storm Eunice. It got me thinking just how dangerous the UK can be. Yes, it may seem mild on land, but Great Britain has some of the fastest tidal currents in the world. If I was writing the character of Kaz, I'd feel nervous about giving her this much jeopardy. This is a very dangerous endeavour. Yeah, I mean, look, weather is probably the number one on our list of things that we can't control. Mentally, we know, I mean, we'd be naive if we thought that we were going to row and we were going to have nice weather and it was all going to be fine, you know, a bit of rain, rain occasionally. From an outside perspective, people seem to think that rowing across an ocean is far more dangerous and far more terrifying than rowing around GB. And I think that's because for a majority of people, the fear they have is kind of lose is that losing sight of land and right. being in that open ocean far away. Whereas for me, it actually fills me with far more fear being close to land. I'm pretty comfortable now with the fact that I know that I'm probably going to be on edge for the, the entire row. I'm probably not going to have any times when I'm fully relaxed and not worrying about anything whilst we row. And I think that's, I actually think that's a, a good thing. I think you don't want to get relaxed. You don't want to, you know, think everything's fine and then something happens. But yeah, I think for me, the weather around around the UK is probably the biggest worry we've, we've got. We are going to go for the world record, which states that the row must be unsupported and non-stop. In terms of the non-stop, that just means that you can't touch land. So we are allowed, we will have anchors, we will throw the anchor off and we can anchor up, which we will have to do multiple times when we've got tidal flows against us. We're not going to be able to row against tidal flows. So basically tides in general tend to run one way for about six hours and they turn around and they run the other way. So an ocean rowing boat, your speed is averages around two to two and a half knots, but you might have a tide that's going against you that's five knots. So you don't have an engine, we don't have we don't have sails, we can't put anything up to help us against that. So if we've got a tide that's going faster than we can row, then our option is to get to a safe place, throw the anchor in, and then just wait until the tide turns, and then we'll go back out. So in rough weather, our plan is that we will stay anchored off land. We won't go into marinas, we won't go onto shore. We're not going to be stupid if there's anything like the storms that the UK is having today, which, I mean, touchwood, June, July, the weather tends to be relatively stable and those kind of... would be easier, right? (laughs) Yeah, weather systems like that don't tend to come through. If we end up with a forecast that is looking like it's going to be dangerous, the last thing that we want to do is put our lives at risk, but more importantly, we don't want to put any other people's lives at risk who might have to come out to rescue us or whatever. So we've both made a complete piece that we are... We're going to go for the world record. We're going to try and do it nonstop, but we are going to be responsible and we're going to be safe. And that's kind of our top criteria. So if we have to come into Marina to escape particularly bad weather, we will do and we'll wait it out. And then we will just start the row from there again. It will invalidate any world records, but our number one goal really is to get around, is to get around the UK. And the world record is kind of a cherry on the top. So to be honest, I think Andre is more stressed that they're, might be a couple of days of a heat wave where it gets kind of quite unbearable on the boat in terms of if we get some, you know, those those three or four days that we tend to get in Britain where it goes above 30 and the cabins become kind of a 
a horrible sweat box really so I think he's more stressed about that and um yeah I'm more stressed about any particularly nasty kind of winds that come in from the wrong direction. Chapter 3 Pentland Firth It was quite a pleasant task researching the route mapped out for this journey, like a throwback to childhood holidays visiting different parts of the UK coastline, looking out over sandy beaches. I was quite relaxed. That is until I found myself staring at a place called Pentland Firth, which despite its name is actually a strait. Thanks to the two areas of landmass surrounding this passage of water, Pentland Firth is home to some of the fastest tidal currents in the world. The whole world. What does that mean for two people in a small rowing boat? Our plan at the moment, the usual route is to go clockwise around the UK. Um, The only reason we would go anti-clockwise is if the long-range forecast is showing that from a prevailing wind direction, it makes more sense. I think 11 of the 12 rows that have been successful have gone clockwise around the UK. So the prevailing wind tends to be that way. Which is the nice the nice thing about that is that the Pentland Firth is going to be, you know, almost three quarters of the way through the row. And we're going to have done all the south coast, which is where a lot of the other tidal, there's a couple of tricky points around the south coast regarding tides and, and headlands. So, yes, the Pentland Firth is probably the big one. The beauty of sailing is that it's very much like driving once you... The only way I can describe it is so, for example, when you're driving, there's rules of the road. You know, there is certain things you can do, certain things you shouldn't do. If you're driving somewhere that you've not been before, you'll probably look it up and see what road you're going to be driving down and et cetera, et cetera. And sailing's very similar. So there's lots of books. We've kindly been, Imre Nautical is supporting us. So they provided us with all the charts, which are maps, but in sailing, you call them charts. And we've got a lot of their pilot books, which basically give all the information that you need to know about how to get through certain areas safely. So there's lots of information around, you know, if the wind is coming from this direction, when you get to the Pentland Firth, you need to make sure that you go this far offshore or you only go this number of hours before or after high tide, etc, etc. So we feel quite comfortable in terms of We know when it's going to be safe to go through for us and we know when it's not going to be safe. That is definitely one of the areas that if we get to it and we've got bad weather, we could find ourselves, you know, waiting two or three days to actually go through. Yeah, there's taking risks and there's taking unnecessary risks, I think. And we're definitely erring on the side of not taking any unnecessary unnecessary risks. So, yeah, so there's a couple of areas that we've got highlighted as to you know, if we have to sit and wait for wind to shift direction or we need to spend two or three days just sat out an anchor waiting for the right conditions, then we we will. We won't push it and, you know, we'll just hang out, listen to audiobooks. We'll just wait. I mean, ironically, we actually, we went and drove the North Coast 500 last year just um, after lockdown lifted in Scotland, partly actually to get a good look kind of from the land at the route that we were going to be rowing around and, take a little look at some of the potential anchorages that we could use. And the day that we, we made it to um, Pentland Firth was probably the calmest calmest day they've probably ever had there. So it looked absolutely delightful. Um, and we both kind of stood there and laughed, you know, and said, oh, it doesn't look, doesn't look that bad. It looks, it looks nice. But um, yeah, I have made the mistake of watching um, a couple of YouTube videos of when it's 
particularly nasty. And yeah, I think um, if we go clockwise, I think once we get through the Pentland Firth, that would be a big sigh of relief for us. Um, I mean, everything then is south, so it feels like you're just you're going downhill to the finish line. So I think once we, um, yeah, in our heads, once we get round that top corner of Scotland, we'll um, we'll be on the home straight then. And I've got this image of the pair of you on anchor in the middle of the Pentland Firth, listening to this episode of the <laughs> Line, and Andre saying, "Why are we so relaxed? Look at look at us now." You know? Yeah. Um, can we just talk a little bit? has about sponsorship with everything that's been going on i know when we first spoke you took some time to outline the fact that you have a charity partner but you were also looking for corporate um, sponsorship given everything that you've both been through to get to this point which isn't even in the damn country how, how much yeah. have you been able to do on on sponsorship has anybody come forward and um put their name to to parts of the boat not really so yeah we're still looking for corporate sponsors We've got some great partners who we've joined up with who are helping us out with kit and the product we need. But yeah, from a corporate sponsor side, we're definitely still looking. So, um, I mean, we've got packages ranging from £250 up to our headline sponsor is £10,000, which I mean, might sound a lot, but on a any other ocean rower, headline sponsor normally sits around, you know, £30,000 to £40,000. So... Yeah, so we've got a really good package that we can that we're offering. I think the we definitely had to put bit of a bit bit of a breaks on kind of during December when we just had that period of complete uncertainty. So yeah, I'd say we probably lost four to six weeks in terms of sponsorship. We just didn't really feel comfortable when we had no idea whether, whether you could Andre do the race was going to be allowed in the country, what was going on. Yeah, we really just put a bit of a break on the sponsorship search partly in terms for our kind of mental resilience. I think it was getting us, it was, you know, when you spend so much time trying to put in, but we had no idea what was going to happen. But yeah, now we're 100% sure that we're we're definitely going. So we're, yeah, we're back on the sponsorship bandwagon. So yeah, so we're, no, we're definitely still looking for companies to come on board and, and support, so. As always, it's it's been a journey and an inspiration. It's been great. Kazlander, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. A massive thank you then to Kazlander for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Try not to worry about the things you can't control. Writers are expert warriors and brilliant procrastinators. And it's easy to find yourself paralysed by these feelings. So learn to control only the controllable and deal with everything else when and only when it comes. Give aspects of your story, like the weather, the recognition they're due. Treat them as characters rather than setting. The weather, for instance, is a powerful and formidable force that can embody so much personality. And finally, aim high, but don't keel over trying to reach your goal. Know when to back off. Kaz and Andre want a Guinness World Record, that's clear but I assume they'd settle for just making it through safely. That sort of mentality will keep you sane through the writing process too. Thanks for listening, I'm Mark Haywood. In our next instalment with Kaz, we're hoping to get down to see the boat in the flesh. In the meantime, let me know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode by sending an email to info at behindthespine.co.uk. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Goodbye for now, stay safe, and keep writing.
This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.